there's an agonistic struggle that is able to be played out, but it's kind of bounded in a certain way, and it doesn't get to the level of maybe wanting to kill or actually being... Co- yeah. you know, constituted politically Except in such a way as you're ready like to kill. It's a sissy version of it. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah, it's yeah, existential very, yeah, it's like, so, it's, just, it's like, it's yeah. like soy schmidt. It's like soy schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> So, do you just notice that? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> I'm the outlier. Um, so, a bit of a different vibe on today's episode. Um, we don't discuss reactionaries very often, but we thought we'd change it up a bit and discuss Carl Schmidt, focusing especially on his 1923 book, The Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy. This book belongs to the period of Schmidt's work for which he is perhaps best known and which has attracted the most attention among political theorists, the period spanning from the 1920s and early 1930s before he officially joined the Nazi party in 1933, the same year Heidegger joined. During the Third Reich, Schmidt was a prominent Nazi jurist and was even appointed as the president of the Association of National Socialist German Jurists. Because of his unrepentant Nazism, and refusal to undergo denazification after the war, he was banned from teaching, although he did go on to author several books that have garnered significant academic attention in recent years, especially Nomos of the Earth and Theory of the Partisan. For the last several decades, there has been something of a Schmidt renaissance, with his work being taken up by contemporary conservatives and reactionaries across the globe, who find in his work a distinctly right-wing attack on liberalism, and who affirm his view of politics as an irreducible struggle between friend and enemy. Interestingly, though, Schmidt has, since the 1990s, also become a central point of reference across a broad terrain of theory from the left, including extensive appropriations of his work by Giorgio Agamben and uh, Chantal Mouffe, though the left has had a much more fraught relationship with this thought. Some seek to separate what they consider to be salient and illuminating concepts from the more or less fascist tendencies in his thinking, concepts like the state of exception and sovereign suspension of law. Um, those became particularly fashionable points of reference during the Bush years. The irreducibility of the friend-enemy antagonism in all politics or in his anti-liberal conception of democracy. Others decry the dangerous mystique that draws thinkers to his work claiming that there are no philosophical or political lessons in Schmidt that we are not much better served by learning elsewhere, in Machiavelli or Lenin or Hegel. So before we discuss, um, just a, a quick word then about the crisis of parliamentary democracy. The central aim of, of the crisis book is to define with rigorous precision the organizing principles of what he calls parliamentarism. This requires, he argues, dispelling the notion that parliamentary representation and democracy are equivalent, or even organically connected. Democracy for Schmidt just means the identity of ruler and ruled, of political power with the will of the people. And there's nothing a priori that excludes dictatorship, for example, from embodying this identity, and therefore from being democratic. Democracy and dictatorship are paradoxically perfectly compatible for Schmidt. Moreover, Whereas the parliamentary system of electing representatives purports to be the only practicable form of democratic politics, Schmidt is keen to point out that elective rep- elected representatives in actual bourgeois liberal democracies are much more beholden to the interests of capital or to the interests of party or to their own egotistic interests than they are to the ephemeral will of the people that is said to be expressed in the aggregate votes cast in a private booth. So that seems like a good place to start uh, today. And th- this attempt that he makes to disarticulate liberal parliamentarism from democracy, uh, something, by the way, that those in the Marxist tradition are often keen to do as well, right? To disarticulate liberal parliamentarism from, from democracy. 
So I guess I, I want to start by asking what you all make of this attempted disarticulation. Uh, and do you find his critique of liberalism and liberal representation compelling? Because I think that's the starting point. This is what always happens with Schmidt, right? There's some, you start reading a few lines and you're like, okay, that's facts, that's facts. And then, and then he tries to seduce you into a set of entailments that maybe you weren't ready to accept, you know, like, don't you like want dictatorship a bit is, dictatorship? Exactly. Yeah. Just a little bit of dictatorship, man. It's all good. It's all democratic, fam. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'll just jump in and I'll say, you know, um, you know, on top of the, the chapters you had us read, I also read the, the preface to the second edition mm -hmm. and, you know, there, that's where he also makes this yeah. art, the 1926, where he makes a distinction between, you know, liberalism, which, you know, seems to have this principle of, everyone is equal and democracy for him which is you know equal according to the sphere that you are in and equal for um for equals but they always entail some version of inequality and so while reading this you know um, i'll start off with with something i found kind of compelling what he's trying to say there which is you know he's trying to say that you know liberalism gets hung up because it basically tries to stretch the principle of equality to a point where it becomes vacuous and empty and once it's vacuous and empty something i noticed with schmidt you know he's saying it no longer has the the intensity the political capacity to actually effectuate whatever it is tr it's trying to do. And so something that I thought was interesting, what he was saying there is that, you know, he was saying that, no, there are distinct um, spheres of social life and politics is a distinct sphere. And to try to liquidate them and make them all the same, he thinks that's what liberalism is trying to do. Rather than democracy adheres to the specific quality of the political space that, you know, entails not just, you know, universally equality, but equality vis-a-vis -a, -vis a certain criteria. So at first, what I thought he was trying to do is something along the lines of saying, what does it mean to have an organization of political life that's actually effective rather than simply merely um, nice words? Or I think what he's looking for is something that goes beyond something that's merely technically pragmatic. What actually has coherent principles upon which to found politics and he thinks liberalism no longer has that it is merely he even has this nice line just because there's no other option that's not a compelling argument for liberalism mm -hmm. that just means this is what works for now yeah i like that point about the way in which it stretches equality as a formal principle to almost like a breaking point right where like it he the way he says it, the, the language you used which i think is correct was intensity right something with sufficient intensity will replace it. But he's also keen to point out that like that intensity is going to be derived from the way in which that non-formal, non-formally equal thing has an inequality or un unequal division built into it. Right. And like the examples that he gives are like, you know, like Owen said, like weird to see him like almost saying very Marxy sounding things like mm -hmm. economic inequality is going to start doing the work behind the scenes of this formal liberal equality because of the power and potency, the intensity built into the inequality that it produces. So that like sort of nice facade, but what does it get you? And the answer is certainly not the supposed equality that you thought you were after in the first place. That seems right. No, no, yeah, he's, he's keen to point out the, the kind of hypocrisy in the supposedly universalist conception of equality that liberals are operating with. And so you say, like, show me one liberal democracy or one manifestation of liberalism that isn't predicated on, you know, hypocritically predicated on the exclusion of certain groups of people, on the oppression of certain groups, on radical forms of inequality based on economics or race even, right? He gives the example of the U.S. I mean, um, so, he, so, he, so it's interesting that he, he does think that democracy is defined by a principle of equality, right? So he's consistent with elements of the Enlightenment tradition that way, except he thinks that we need to basically come to terms with the fact that that equality is always indexed to unequals. Mm -hmm. Liberalism claims that it doesn't create unequals <laughs> with its inequality, but look, but like just ask like folks in prison or undocumented people or whatever, right? Like to give more contemporary um, examples, like there are always, there's always disenfranchisement, exclusion, 
and inequality that comes along with that de facto comes along with a de jure principle of universal equality. And so he's like, look, if we're going to be Democrats, like in the not in the in the lowercase sense of Democrats, you know, uh, let's own yeah, up. To I don't the fact think Schmidt's a fan of the Democratic Party. <laughs> no, okay. no, no. In fact, some, yeah, in fact, sometimes it seems like the, the whole book is like written against like 2022 Democrats in a certain way. Um, but uh, but yeah, so he said, you know, let's just own the fact that there is no equality without the designation of a group of unequals, the circumscription of a domain of, of equals, which is inherently exclusive. And just like mm-hmm. basically accept that fact, you know, and so, yeah, you can have all things that to us and quite rightfully so, I think, look barbaric, you know, but for him, he claims that there's nothing inconsistent with, again, democratic yeah. politics in those elements of barbarism. He's not a moralist. So it, it seems to me, you know, he's like, you, you, know, you might not like what this looks like, but all I'm trying to say, if I'm Carl Schmidt, don't cut that one out. <laughs> yeah. If I'm Carl yeah. Schmidt, is that for political concepts to be effective, they must be bounded. And, you know, um, I read Nomos of the Air, so this is uh, jumping ahead a little bit, but I do still mm-hmm. see some continuity. He thinks you think you can just apply concepts irrespective of any borders, irrespective of any spatial limitation. What you're going to have is a fundamentally inoperable concept. And so he's trying to say all of these, you know, pay-ins to universality, to universal brotherhood. Of course, he calls out the French Revolution and the Declaration of the Rights of Man here. You think you can just Across those borders, but when it comes down to actually affecting these concepts in reality, you're going to actually have to mark out, demarcate the space in which they operate. And you know, so here's something I, I want to put out to you all because it can sound like I'm 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 so rosy on Carl Schmidt. I'm not one of those left Schmidians, but it seems to me was the point of reading sort of reactionary figures. Well, it seems to me it's never that reactionary figures have everything wrong. It is they often offer the test of those of us who are on the left of what we would have to overcome you know if we want to have something that is is practical and so he's laying down this test this argument that you know if you think universality can be unbounded how do you make it effective how do you institutionalize it? How do you prevent it from becoming incoherent and you know, collapsing in on itself? And that is something that you know, I think is worthwhile battling Schmidt on, you know, if he's right that concepts need this boundedness, this uh, uh, limitedness, this notion of if you're going to have equality, it has to be a bounded equality that indexes inequality. So I have a, a kind of basic question because this is the first time I've read this one thing I think he's right about and then like a question um so like there is this what I kind of took away from the first couple chapters of what we read was that like there's a a disaggregate I thought the disaggregation was between democracy and justice like contemporary liberalism assumes those are the same thing (laughs) and even if it's not um you know, this was like 1923, but I just think everyone since like from the Cold War onward um, and positioning itself against communism has argued that democracy and justice are interchangeable or at least interchangeable enough such that we can assume that democracies are just. And like, I think it's worth poking at at that set of assumptions. Like, you know, when you start asking start to identify injustices in the world. And then you ask yourself, is democracy going to solve this problem? Like if you just expand democracy into the economy, is that going to do what you want it to do? And the answer, in in my opinion, is is no. Um, Just giving people more voice. Participation is not just like the answer to the question all the time. And I think think it's worth entertaining this seriously. What I don't understand and what didn't become clear to me is that this whole text is like a battle against, in quotes, the Jacobin logic. And I don't really understand what he thinks the Jacobin logic is. So at first, I thought that it was just like one more conservative argument against majoritarian um, domination. Like there's many conservative arguments against democracy, the tyranny of the majority. But then like, he seems to say it's not that like he has this little move where he's like, it's not the tyranny of the majority. It's that this, the Jacobin logic always turns into the tyranny of a minority. And I think I, you know, just kind of a first pass at the text. And I'm wondering what you all think 
the Jacobin logic is? Like, what is the problem he's picking out? I think it's that the true and the just are what confer legitimacy and not necessarily like majorities or even necessarily minorities. So minorities just as well mm-hmm. as majorities can be in possession, can be in possession of the true and the just. Like it seems, he, so he distinguishes between two different ways of understanding what makes legitimacy. He references Hobbes at one point and says that there's a distinction between um, thinking that legitimacy comes from like truth Mm-hmm. and justice or thinking that legitimacy just comes from authority right he likes hobbes because hobbes said that what makes legitimacy is authority there isn't it isn't truth and and justice and these concepts are not what authority derives from uh, what legitimacy derives from they derive ultimately from from authority and so i think he uses like he takes hobbes's side against the liberal version of trying to claim that you have truth and justice on your side the jacobin claim to try to claim that you have to get legitimacy through truth and justice like for him, it is the actual authority. It's the power itself that makes the legitimacy, right? So does that yeah. make sense? Like slotting yeah. into those, yeah. And I was going to say while while reading this, because you know, I'm I'm also finding myself increasingly reading more conservative thinkers. So y'all know I've I've already been Hayek pilled. I'm getting Oak Shock pilled right now. <laughs> oh, and no. reading no, this, Will. Yeah. Jesus, yeah, no, y- y'all are about to lose we gotta, me. We this gotta is, save our voice. This is about to be a very different pod. Let me tell you what. But you know, <laughs> um, I while reading this, I started picking up on you know Schmidt is also part of this conservative critique. This is also trying to answer Lillian's question. Of rationalism, so you know he also yeah. often describes you know what you're calling yeah. the Jacobin logic, and you know what he thinks that he's slandering Marx by saying they're all rationalists at the end. Insofar yeah. as you know, they think that this there's this ultimate harmony to things, and this ultimate harmony is, as Owen was saying, truth and justice, and it will you know it will work itself out, even if it's not you know uh, like a mechanical law. He tries to be nice and sophisticated with Hegel. It's not like a law of nature, but he sees in this Jacobin you know logic this idea that it is possible for us to plan reality in accordance with uh, these notions of truth and justice. Mm-hmm. That it is possible for us to be conscious enough and to control human affairs enough yeah. that you know we can, as if it were a machine, you know, create a society that is you know um, hom- homologous to truth and justice. He thinks that that's not politics. Is is my understanding of what's yeah. going on? and that's his critique of so of, like you said of Marxist so what he calls Marxist socialism as well, right? Science scientific socialism, the fact that it tries to tie the political project and tie politics to truth, to reason, and to a kind of transcendental conception of justice. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, like, okay. At some point he says that, like, parliamentarism, which we haven't even talked about really at all, but I think kind of like this is the place to introduce this concept, right, is this thing, this really peculiar assumption or a set of assumptions that comes from a kind of rationalism here, according to which, like, uh, well, how do you get truth? Well, you get it by allowing competing opinions to, like, hash it out in public. And this is going to have all of these postulates about openness and so on and so forth. Um, and his first and I think most cutting question here is, like, why the fuck would you think that that's true, first of all? That's a really <laughs> weird way to think about how what truth is and how it works. We're just going to, like, get everyone to, like, talk it out, and then we're going to come to the truth somehow. But so, so that's a weird assumption. That's an idea, though, that he thinks belongs not to democracy but to liberalism, wherein which we do have this sort of distinction between equality or equal persons who, who have an equal title to having an opinion and then can hash it out. So... It doesn't belong to democracy, which has the substantive kind of equality amongst the democratically represented because we've excluded people, right? Because it's on the basis Mm -hmm. of this constitutive exclusion that there's a substantive identity of ruler and ruled. So when he talks about, quote, parliamentary democracy, like that's a chimera, right? That's Mm -hmm. like an, an, an intellectually incoherent mishmash, right? Where like... We have on the one hand this idea and and like when he goes to Rousseau here, like for me, the like the, the wheels start really turning. I'm like, oh, my God, this critique of Rousseau is so fucking correct, where he's like, this looks like liberalism. It calls itself a contract theory. It looks like a thing that people who might disagree would like come together and agree to. But then how does it actually work in Rousseau? Oh, well, you get a general will which is this thing that proves itself to have always been true about the people. And if you were in the minority, bad news. That's just a confirmation that you misunderstood what the general will. Bye, boy. 
you're done. Mm -hmm. And so like the minority disappears, right. As something important and substantive, it's actually like gone. Like, so now we have an identity of the general will, even with the minority that disagreed because their vote confirmed that they should be excluded from representation. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool logic right there. <laughs> yeah. very, and this is, I think the Jack, I think this is what he means by the Jacobin logic. Hmm. I think that's hmm. what he means by the Jacobin logic. And he's just like, look, like whatever else is true about democracy, let's not pretend that the parliamentarism that's supposedly involved in like this debate of ideas, like actually conferred the legitimacy of that exclusion moment. That's something Ooh. else. I think that's something else. Yeah, and he's keen to, you know, he's keen to show that what actually happens in these supposedly open discussions. Well, first of all, he says, look at any of the parliaments that exist around the world, or you could say today, like, look at your U.S. Congress. Like, do you really, does that look like truth-seeking to you? Like, does that look like, <laughs> like, a, like a deliberative process? Does it seem rational? They're on, they're on like, the no. hunt for justice. Says, they're huh? on the hunt for the truth. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, right. For, for, like, there's no Fuck general will formation happening. Or, and, and, there's no will, collective will formation happening in these representative bodies. What's happening is, first of all, he says, and he's right about this, right, that everything increasingly happens in cabinet and in secret committees, Right. Secret like congressional or parliamentary committees where all the important stuff is hashed out in a kind of arcane, you know, uh, mysterious like domain. Mm -hmm. um, and then second of all, like what's actually driving the deliberations in those arcane, mysterious like places where they're weighing the interests of capital, weighing the interests of party, uh, etc., um, what's actually like, go, you know, going on in there is the creation of policies that are not meant to do any, not serve the general interest, right? They're meant to serve very particular interests. So let's slow down because, you know, uh, I think that's all right. And so I, I also want to, to like, you know, get clear. And so what is Schmidt's critique of liberal democracy at the end of the day? And by that, I also want to say, like, so what is Schmidt's positive vision? So I actually was kind of interested here where I don't think you actually get his full-fledged positive vision. You get no. the hints, no. you get the winks, but mm -hmm. I think this is more of a <laughs> negative critique. And yeah, I don't want to, like, you know, lean what too much What are the winks and the hints, like, the fash? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. I, think the, I think the dictatorship, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, the mobilization but not of, of the, the people. proletariat. A different oh, certainly not. Oh my <laughs> no, God, no, certainly yeah. not. not the I'm okay, sorry to interrupt you, but I think when I was reading the section on Marx and like the dictatorship of the proletariat stuff, I was like, so you just want a different one? So like, what's your critique yeah. of Marxism? <laughs> His, no, like you're just yeah. you're like you're just salty that the Soviet Union has a dictatorship and you don't get one anymore. <laughs> I think, well, he's salty about a couple things. This is an honest question. He's salty about the internationalism. Actually, are you actually making a critique or are you just big mad? Like, I, I was kind of, like... Well, for, sure in order for, like, dictatorship to work and be democratic in his model, what he, what he requires is that there be what he calls, like, the homogeneity of the people, right? right. So there has right. to be, the like, Red Army that crushed you. <laughs> <laughs> Big mad. Big mad. You know, oh, that's the episode drop right there. Get okay. Fucking oh, wrecked, fuck. Carl. Get wrecked. The pod gets tanky pilled. <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah, so you need that you need that homogeneity. I mean one of the problems with like with proletarian well, so he talks about the friend enemy distinction as being something that you can kind of graft on to class struggle as well. Right. But his issue there is always like the internationalism of it, the idea of like a global proletarian revolution or something, which isn't sufficiently delimited. So you need for him, like in order to have a, the, you know, a properly democratic dictatorship, unity of people and, and, and those that rule, you need the homogeneity and delimitation. Right. So the yeah. homogeneity is, I mean, there's the wink wink too. I mean, it's like ethnic, it's like ethno ethnic homogeneity. Uh, it seems yeah, he quite won't come out and me. say it, but it's just like so. What what is the principle of identity? Yeah, it's yeah, behind I, the curtain. By the way, right? there are maniacs that try to save Schmidt and say, no, 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 it's not. It has nothing to do with ethnic. The homogeneity thing is totally harmless. It it's like uh, homogeneity of political culture and all this, whatever. So there are ways that people do try to go that route, but but basically they're wrong. Very very sophisticated. Wow. <laughs> very sophisticated. Yeah. Very they're clever. Yale. Yeah, they're at Yale and Columbia and shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, but in any case, yeah. So you need that you need that ethnic homogeneity, and it's got to be delimited territorially, delimited like you know culturally and ethnically. And all these delimitations that that you were referencing, Will. 
mm-hmm. and then you know then you can then you can do some good good politics. I think what's good politics on Schmidt's uh, account. And I also want to add one more thing to the delimitation of probably what, you know, why he's, you know, uh, in our sophisticated language, big mad about, you know, the Soviet is also, you know, it's not just transgressing national borders. It's also transgressing borders between politics and economy. You know, mm-hmm. he does, you know, make, you um, well, he states it. I don't know if he makes the point, but he states it. That, you know, principles of equality are different um, when, irrespective of the domain you are talking about. So the domain of politics, you know, what equality means there will be different than uh, the domain of ec- uh, economics or economy and what will be, you know, the principle of equality there. And so he is also deeply suspicious of, oh, so we're just going to blend all of these spheres of social life and under one principle of equality. And for him, and this is we'll get back to my sort of uh, negative question you know so is Smith's problem with this transgression of borders is his problem with um parliamentary democracy or liberal democracy either that it's not effective or that it's hypocritical that it actually turns in on itself because i also was a bit confused when he was like you all talk about liberal parliamentary democracy as if it's really mm-hmm. this thing but it turns out all the important decisions are made behind closed doors and you know if, if you just read this quickly you might think like is that comrade schmidt is that you know, <laughs> saying like what <laughs> yeah, about yeah, the yeah. people but i don't think that that's what he's saying so i'm i'm, I'm wondering is, if he is he saying that it will collapse in on itself that it will no longer be workable or is he saying that it's not authentically united with this amorphous notion of the people that he has that we don't really get grips on because he doesn't tell us what he That's thinks good, yeah. politics should look like mm. but that is my question That's a good question i sh- yeah. i share this question because that's kind of what i was asking like when i'm saying when what was the critique and you're like throwing out some different options like when liberals make this critique of communism and of the dialectic like you know like in a way in a way the what he's saying is just like Karl Popper could have wrote this. Any Cold War liberal could have wrote this. Like, we've heard it before. Um, But from their perspective, they're not big mad. They're just, like, big moralism. You know, they're just like, (laughs) you are hypocritical, and it's not authentically democratic, and all of these contradictions amount to dictatorship and you think it's going to be the rational democracy, but in fact it's the inverse. Like that does Mm -hmm. seem to be like, that's not a criticism that's original to him. But then if he's arguing against liberalism at the same time, I just don't get, and, and I've heard this about Schmidt, like people don't think he has normative criteria, but like I genuinely don't understand the criteria. Like, the reason I think he sounds big mad is it's just like you're just jealous that they have a dictatorship and you don't have a dictatorship and you yep. want one, <laughs> you know? So, and you want one with the right circumscribed boundaries and you're mad that like the co- the communists are, you know, showing up in Germany and before they talk to your politicians, they're like pamphlet- pamphleting your soldiers, you know, to like yeah. overthrow your government. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like that's what yeah. you're mad about. And so, you know, there's just... Sorry, I'm being a little like facetious, no, but great. I just no, don't quite get the the thrust of the argument from a, a non-liberal. Like in that case, it's just like okay, so you have opposition, and they want to crush you, and you want to crush them, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. go big or go home. And sadly, at the end of the day, uh, he loses, which must make him have made him mad forever. But um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. So I, I I am now realizing I think and this is me drawing upon other Schmidt that I've read. You know, so here is his normative point. The normative point is, you know, let's just like you know, bring it down a notch. Schmidt's a scared little man. And what he's mm-hmm. scared of is that he thinks that at, you know at the center of reality is it's just chaos. And for him, his biggest fear is that, you know, what parliamentary democracy does in its transgression of borders is that it actually opens the way for full-blown chaos, the dissolution of politics, economy, etc. And so for him, what's reactionary in Schmidt is for him, it isn't as if there's a positive good that he's straining for. He's All he wants is, you know, to use the, the Greek word, I think, katakon or something, like, the restraining of chaos, the restraining of the mm-hmm. dissolution 
because there isn't actually inbuilt normativity in the world. There's just, you know, the yep. power to constrain the random dynamism of social life. And so when he's looking at the Soviet Union, rights of man, he's like, you all think you're doing this moral good, but what you're doing is actually opening the way for the loss of stability. And this is, I think, what makes him distinctly even not giving a sort of liberal critique he's not saying that the problem is the loss of democracy with you know the dictatorship of the proletariat what he's saying is it's the the loss of politics and social life as such because you know you know i just also want to say say this real quick because remember for him democracy is rather formal you know you could have a republican democracy you could have a liberal democracy you could have a dictatorship democracy and so for him unlike i think liberals he doesn't actually have substantive content for democracy that would say democracy good he's saying actually democracy is available for all sorts of things and so i think this is what he where he's going there's a type of realist edge to him but it's a dark realism where he thinks mm -hmm. only you know a sort of type of sovereignty and delimitation can hold back this constant churn of chaos that's at the heart of life yeah i think that's really good yeah i was just gonna say that like of the two in this dyad liberalism and democracy he does seem to have a marked preference for democracy it's just that he thinks that as you said democracy can take on any number of different political and institutional forms, because again, he's defined it in a pretty, pretty thin formal way. It's the identity of ruler and ruled, right? In some mm -hmm. form or another. And his beef with the liberals, like to go back to Lillian's question, which I really like, it's not just a hypocrisy critique. I think that you're right, that he's got a more effectivity or viability based argument, right? He wants to say that like, the the liberal form of trying to establish democracy opens itself up to like kind of subversion from within it almost starts sounding like derrida to me he starts talking about like this sort of like you know to just like use derridian language for a second this kind of like auto deconstruction of the of the democratic right so he's like oh if what you think is the thing that secures democracy are these democratic quote unquote democratic institutions oh you've got a parliament great cool what if the people get, what if the representatives get together and vote a fucking like anti-democratic dictator into power? Like what mm -hmm. happens to the stability this was meant to secure, right? And so like there's the legitimacy problem because of the, the hypocrisy at the core of it. But also he thinks that like these liberal parliamentarian institutions aren't sufficiently stable or are incapable of protecting the supposedly democratic core whereas by contrast i think he's his if he's got a norm here he's like yeah you know what dictatorial democracy like that's powerful that shit can take care of the of the the interlopers and the dissenters yeah, he has this like really great moment. He's even, you know, this is following up on what you're saying. Like, yeah, there's a moment where I'm like, oh, I get why Derrida has a whole chapter on Schmidt. Because, you know, it's almost like, you know, you know Schmidt yeah. plagiarized Derrida in the future. He has a moment like, you know, <laughs> if you really are doing the democratic principle, then, you know, the people could just choose to not have democracy anymore. And you'd have to be okay with that. And he uses this and example. You, and of, you have to be authoritarian in that sense. You'd have, you said you have two options. Either democracy goes away or it goes away anyways. Like, either democracy it goes away because the authoritarian people win or it goes away because you have to suspend like liberal democratic rule and do some authoritarian shit to suppress this authoritarian party right and so this is yeah. so, like i think i think it's the irreducibility Sounds familiar the to me yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly and, we've never and, seen and, that before <laughs> no, i think what will and gill you guys are saying is like absolutely right though because i think that he thinks that what liberalism tries to do is to like liquidate politics to turn the friend-enemy relationship into the debating adversary, into the economic competitor, both yeah. domestically and like internationally. And he thinks that politics is an ineluctable part of human reality. It's the friend-enemy distinction goes along with like the beautiful and the ugly, which is essential to aesthetics, you know, that goes along with like truth and 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 falsity, which is essential to epistemology, right? And all that. It's a it's an it's a distinction that lies at the core of who we are. And so his issue with, with liberal democracy is that it tries to liquidate something that ain't going anywhere. Like it's, yeah. and that's why he says like, you make this, like you attempt to eliminate it. And what happens is that these 
adverse, these en- relationships of enmity reappear domestically in all kinds of ways, mm-hmm. right? Uh, whether it be excluded people that are excluded within, to use Cena Kramer's expression, which I really like, um, mm-hmm. or or it's like you know uh, the, you have like massive economic inequality. Uh, there are all these ways in which. Politics will will keep insisting on itself, so we might as well. We're way better served, I think, in the long term for Schmidt, and just understanding that this is the logic of politics, the the relationship of friend and enemy, the the fact that politics is totally unmoored from principles of truth and justice that are like <laughs> universal and ahistorical, and so like you know, yeah. So that that's yeah, that's I yeah. think is the. I have two things to say that that's really great. One, you just do a callback. It's almost as if Schmidt is writing this and Thrasymachus once more is just like, y'all rang? Oh, I thought y'all <laughs> got away from me, but... 100%. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? And the other yeah. thing I would say is like, yo, yo, Schmidt red-eye, yo, gif, when Nancy Pelosi a couple days ago was just like, yo, we need a strong Republican Party. We want a strong <laughs> Republican Party. This is someone who misunderstands fundamentally for all of our critiques of the Democratic yeah. Party. Here's the Schmidtian critique of that moment. You don't understand politics. That's an abdication politics. of politics, and also it will lead to the worst because you don't even understand the game that you're playing. You think the game that you're playing is friendly debate, but you know uh, the well, the use language that Owen was saying for Schmidt in his understanding, the politics is irreducible. Its intensity is this friend enemy distinction, and his beef with liberals is he or and his beef also with Jacobin logic and all of that is you all keep dreaming of this time where politics. Will finally be suspended, where the friend enemy mm-hmm. distinction is merely historical artifact and it will finally be displaced. And what you will have is some sort of pre established harmony where everyone throws out their opinions and somehow something good comes of it. And so, again, I know it sounds like I'm rosy on Schmidt, but I think like, you know, sometimes when you're reading, you can see why it can be gripping to those on the right and the left, where he's saying, if you're going to do politics, you're going to do politics. Stop dreaming of beyond politics and understand mm-hmm. that this is, you know, a modality of human life on which there's this intensity to stake claims, to make borders. This is not, you know, a monopoly game or I don't know why I said monopoly. This isn't Uno. So my, my like, you know, this is life in Uno rocks. So that's why I went with yeah, that. We are like, yeah. playing risk. We playing trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah, like my, Schmidt loves that. Yeah. We playing risk. <laughs> <laughs> my issue is like, I, there is a part of me that wants to preserve the insistence on the conflictuality of politics, which I think sometimes it's easier to avoid than it is to, you know, look straight at but to not... But to have that conflict not be grounded in the like irrationalism of intense association right. with a certain group of people because of I don't know ethnicity or like is it possible? This has been like a question I've tried to you know I've tried to counter Terry with that I don't think I've ever adequately answered. But is it possible to to preserve the, an element of that emphasis on the fact that yeah, like politics very often maybe always does involve a friend enemy distinction of some kind. But that that friend enemy distinction isn't made in left politics on the basis of totally irrational criteria, uh, but it's actually made on the basis of a, a clash between like injustice and a conception of a, a just world. Okay, great. So there is a moment where I think this can also help me clarify maybe or help answer to the, another question Lillian asked before, which is what's his, what is his problem with Marxism and with communism? Like, because he says at some point that like all of these representative liberal democracies think that the, the substance of politics is like a conflict of opinions and not a struggle of interests. Right. Yeah. And like, he thinks that like, you know, once like this more like realpolitik, honest truth about the thing is that no, it's a struggle of interests. That's an irreconcilability. This is the theory of partisanship. And part of his beef with the Marxists and the communists that he's looking at at the time, I think, might have something to do with, like, on the one hand, they recognize that. On the one hand, they recognize that, right? Class struggle is the motor of history. And this is, in fact, an irreconcilable antagonism between proletarian and bourgeois. Mm -hmm. But then you also get these other claims that do sound like they're from this Enlightenment rationalist tradition about how, like, oh, and by the way, the proletariat is the universal class. Oh, and by the way, like it represents like the interests of humanity as a whole of everyone. And like this will lead to the abolition of class. And he's like, what are you talking about? Right. Like, is first of all, that makes it sound a lot nicer to the 
bourgeois who we're about to, to uh, you know, bite it, reappropriate from, right? It's like as though, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Bust out the guillotines and tell me again how this is about the universal mission of humanity, right? And then again, like the sort of sort, let's call it naive utopian aspiration to put an end to class antagonism he's like that's just not a thing y'all like where is this coming from so this might be like one way of trying to get at like his his beef with like the communist project yeah. at least as he understands it in his day the antagonism's never going away i mean it'll shift to a different domain he would say like even if you resolve a certain kind of antagonism in the economic sphere it will be displaced onto another sphere of human like social life and so yeah that that element <laughs> of it yeah yeah, look, when I read Schmidt, and maybe this is a, a broader question, but I still think it's it's with the text uh, that we read. You know, there's something really bracing reading Schmidt. And by, and by bracing, I mean like, fuck. What <laughs> is the end of politics? And it seems like in Schmidt's view, there is no preordained end. There is no necessary end. And in fact, politics is a force in it of itself. That it is, you know, it's integral to the types of human creatures that we are. And the best we can do is to contain it as well as we can, but to dream of doing without it is disastrous. And so here's the, the rather mm -hmm. question that I'm asking. So, you know, I think sometimes on the left, those of us who, whether we're sci scientific Marxists or utopian Marxists or something like that, a lot of us, I don't think that what we want to buy into is that, you know, politics is just simply this endless affair of the, again, to use Owen's language, um, intense affiliations that there is something that we want to bring into existence. There is a better arrangement of affairs. But then you read Schmidt, and if he is right, then we're the dupes. And, <laughs> you know, and we won't even be able to do the thing that we are claiming. And so I'm wondering, is it worth, mm. if we are on the left, to think, so what is the substance of, I think for Schmidt, he'd say the political, honestly. Um, what mm -hmm. is the substance of it? Is it to overcome it or is it to mobilize it, instrumentalize it um, towards the, uh, the ideals that we have, whether that is truth or justice? I think you know, we're, we're at a certain point, we know Schmidt's not going to agree with us, but I think at least he's laying this landscape or this terrain that we have to reckon with if we don't want to fall into his traps. And I think, you know, for someone like, you know, the Nancy Pelosi example I used, I think Schmidt's got the number there. He's like, oh, you, you don't even know what you're doing and you're, 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 you're going to undo the very good that you think you're bringing about. But I don't want to descend into an idea of it is just conflict all the way down. Mm -hmm. Irreducible, yeah. intense. And I keep saying this language of intense because intensity is really important that's his for him. language Cause, too. Yeah, because he thinks that's what activates us. Yeah. That's what mobilizes us. And he thinks if politics is anything, it's an activation. It's a mobilization. But I think mm -hmm. for some of us, that's kind of frightening, the idea of always being mobilized and activated. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. So I feel like to have that kind of perspective, you have to like live in the era of mass politics. Like I can't think of any population that's less mobilized and activated than like our own currently. Like we're activated in our mind. Like but that's not activation. We're stimulated. I'm pretty active that's, on Twitter. That, yeah, he's looking around at Weimar. He's looking around at Weimar Germany and saying, "Damn, people are pretty damn politically active." It's extremely different <laughs> right. historical context. Like, yeah, yeah. very. Different. So like, yeah. I, I I guess what I don't get about the the friend enemy distinction thing is like. What kinds of friends and enemies are you talking about? Like, there's a contest. Okay, so, like, you have different sides to some kind of contest. Like, there's different normative problems or harms or kinds of injustice that are located, you know, depending on the question that you're asking and the nature of the conflict. So, like... It's just like, it's okay, so you eradicate the deep class antagonism. Just because there's more conflicts doesn't mean that it's just a perpetuation of the same. Like, the conflicts mm. can be different kinds of conflicts. Like, getting rid of deep class antagonisms doesn't mean getting rid of politics. That's why the, 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 the kind of gloss on that, like, the concrete nature of the socialist project and the series of equivocations you have to make to be like, yeah, mm -hmm. politics is people engaging in conflict. And when they do that, they oppose one another and they call one the friend and they call the other the en enemy. You position yourself against other people. 
that makes it seem like the positioning is is like somehow arbitrary and then yeah like once it's over it'll just be put onto something else but like why and like what if that's fine because the thing that is something else is just like more just than the thing that came before like it's it's okay to have conflict that yeah. doesn't entail domination it just means i I, th- I see what you're saying i think that like in order to respond to that though it it like we, it should be clear that like his view of conflict has to do with like existential conflict the sense that your way of life is being threatened from outside or from it's like enemies within he's always using this expression of like ways of life like forms of life that are being threatened and I think he thinks that for as long as human beings can, like, in order to create co- a coherent collective form of life, it, there has to be that relationship of enmity, something that you're willing to, like, sacrifice and die for, right? The, the sacrificial element of that conflict is really important, too. Um, and so, like, yeah, so I, I get That doesn't really answer your question about, like, why it is that we can't just kind of, like, say, okay, we're going to address class antagonism and there will be, like, other kinds of conflict. But I think that his the, the point he wants to make to, like, Marxists, who he thinks are, well, both scientific and utopian, like, socialists, uh, is to say that that element of, like, existential conflict, that element of sense of, like, existential fear of the, of the other eliminating you or eliminating your way of life, and we see that language all the time. Like they hate our way of life or our way of life is, you know, um, that that's just how we go about making political community. And so it will just, it, you know, if we're not doing it in one sector, we'll do it in another sphere of human activity. But it's just going to shift around because that is what, and there's, a, there's an anthropological, a kind of pseudo anthropological point that is underlying all of this, right? About the nature of human beings. And I, I think it's a kind of Hobbesian philosophical anthropology. Well, I mean, like maybe one take, maybe one takeaway then is something like if we, think that Schmidt is even a little bit right in this uh, pretty spurious philosophical anthropology, like even a little bit, mm-hmm. then like the, the, the form of trying to motivate struggle for like a leftist project that actually does seek the abolition of class antagonism can't use that as the motivator. It can't be like, hey, get on board with our project to, you know, try to transform their mode of production because it'll get rid of antagonism and conflict. Like that's not that's not honest or accurate. It might Yeah, not, you need to right. make enemies of the imperialists or enemy, like class enemies or what you know what I mean? Like you can't construct a coherent collective force, I guess for him. Like I'm not. I'm just trying to think through this. Like this is not yeah, something yeah, that yeah. I agree with, right? But no, I mean, but you, yeah, you can't construct. Right. A yeah, we're doing the descriptive, force. not the normative, right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because yeah, I think it's worth you know. I just want to jump and say this because you know, Lily mentioned the friend enemy distinction. Then I, I remembered something else. Um, I think I know about Schmidt. You know. Also, what's uh, important for the friend-enemy distinction is it's an existential choice. It isn't as if there are natural friends and enemies. You know that you have chosen the friend-enemy distinction correctly insofar as people are activated and motivated to um, to uh, uh, prosecute that case. And so you know, for him, again, there's like this ab- abyss at the heart of social life. And so the friend-enemy distinction is almost, it's retroactively proven insofar as you know, there's mm-hmm. a requisite intent Density of political collectives. And so w- w- the way that I'm thinking about what's going on, on with Schmidt is, you know, there's a, there's a really dark picture of humanity that Schmidt has, that he thinks that we can only really feel alive, understand ourselves, and have some sort of stability of social life insofar as we are activated by this distinction that only politics can give us. And to destroy that distinction, to try to move beyond it, you know, I almost like you, uh, you know, not to move too quickly, see almost the type of Nietzscheanism in them, where it's just like, what, we would just be a mass of human creatures, you know, mm-hmm. passive, formless, there'd be nothing remarkable about us. That, that, of course, yeah, added yeah. into this, he thinks it would be catastrophic. And so it seems to me that, you know, what he's saying is that, you know, politics requires choosing well to activate people into an intensity of social action. And if you think that politics is simply about mere conflict or disagreement, you're missing that actually what's important is are people willing to give their lives for it? And, you know, I don't know if there are Schmidt fans out there, but I think that that's actually just really important. He thinks, are you willing to die for this? 
That is, you know, that says that politics is not simply a game of Uno, as I said. This is, this is, you know, your existential being. And if it's not that, if you try to turn politics into we can disagree and live with one another, he's like, you know, see what you get. <laughs> yeah, there is like, there is. A and and like, I mean that almost like, you know, yeah, he's like yeah, saying yeah, a threat. Yeah, it sounds see what like you a get. fucking threat. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. again, <laughs> I'm not saying I agree with Schmidt on this point. I'm just like trying to lay out what I think his argument is. I always think with these reactionary figures, it's important to just keep saying, I'm not saying I agree. I'm sure, just saying right, that yeah. this is what the what I think he is seeing in the world. But the answer to my question is an anthropological claim. That's like, so it's not that he's giving, there's no better argument for it other than this is just what people are like. The, the inescapability of conflict yeah, postulate. Like in that yeah, particular I think, I think kind. So. And I think when so. I'm saying, what if it's like, okay, there's conflicts and then there's conflicts. His answer is that this particular kind of conflict is necessary for anthropological reasons. Or like, yeah, so, so I think there's two parts of it. Too. I think it's necessary for anthropological reasons, but clearly he thinks that like, so one of his critiques of the kind of bourgeois liberal order is that maybe it can kind of pragmatically go on for a decent amount of time. And it's not that it like, even though it's kind of going against this thing that we're claiming has an anthropological foundation, right? The friend-enemy distinction, like politics, it tries to liquidate politics, which he seems to be rooting in a kind of pseudo-anthropological claim about us. It goes on, even though it's contravening that those anthropological imperatives in a certain way, but it's just like lost, disaggregated. There's almost a spiritual element to it, like of just like sitting around mm. and fucking watching TikToks and vaping. You know what I mean? And like, and you're just working in, in a kind of siloed way. You Big lack. L for Gen Z. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like, and like, that's not, and there's just a kind of spiritual lassitude and a kind of emptiness at the heart of existence that he thinks comes with that. And, and that is why it's, it's not just a descriptive claim about the irreducibility of politics, but there is, a, I think there, a kind of normative claim about a fulfilled like human life in a certain way, which a fulfilled collective human existence. So is it right that like the, this is like a fashy interpretation of Nietzsche? So like, you know, Nietzsche's like, mm -hmm. you, you see the abyss, yeah. You know, you can be one of the burnt children and you can mm -hmm. make value, you know, mm -hmm. the art of living. And this is like, you know, I think for Nietzsche, like pretty individualistic. He like has a lot of disdain for col like collective enterprise. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. then like Schmidt's interpretation of this is like, no, the way of making meaning is this existential conflict between which is a collective, a collective enterprise end, yeah. which is a collective yeah, yeah. enterprise right yeah but which does still require these moments of distinction right of drawing the difference between our, our we ourselves and those others uh and in and through doing so like stabilizing a social order and producing something like a meaning and he thinks that that's an inescapable thing i mean i also wonder whether there's some moments where schmitz seems like a pretty good historian and like I wonder whether there isn't some, because I I don't know if I buy this anthropological thesis at all either. Like you, Lily, and I'm pretty skeptical. But like, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder whether or not there isn't like a historical case for this, right? Like, show me the show me the uh, the antagonistic way of rendering groups or people apart from one another that we've overcome. Show me any one that we've ever yeah. done. Doesn't like, is that ever it. has that ever actually happened? And then if like the pitch is like, no, but maybe we could. It's like, all right, well, I mean, sure, fine. <laughs> yeah, that's where that's where his like realism or whatever would like come in and be like, well, it actually you know. is wild. Read Nomos of the Earth, you know, for a Nazi, and maybe actually it's not wild, but it was wild in in grad school. Never for a Nazi, he is startling aware of colonialism. He's like, yeah, that was really violent, and yet also, up. yeah. That is what helped make the world. And there is the way of reading him critiquing colonialism as, you know, an overextension of one's borders. But he also thinks that's what it took to activate people. And mm. so, you know, you know he, he is a historian. He is, I can't believe I'm saying it this way. He is well-read. But, you know, how he's interpreting the materials of history, yeah. I think, is definitely open to question. I think it's also important to say that, you know, it is a, a sort of terrifying picture of politics and, you know, like uh, what Lillian said, this fasci interpretation of Nietzsche that he's giving where, you know, he thinks that this is the only way to give form to us as human creatures. Um, but the I think the last thing I will say is useful in reading Nietzsche is that if you are someone Nietzsche who takes Schmidt. it. Oh, Schmidt. 
Yeah. 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 Blah. Schmidt. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure the other guy might be a bit reactionary too. But you know, I've we like that. him more though. Um, ew, shout outs, Lacerda. Those who make yes, yeah, shout out, big shout out. Those who make easy gestures to universalism, um, to universal justice, as you know, principles that can activate you know um, solid, coherent, and effective political um, constituencies. I think. You have to have an argument against Schmidt. And you know, you know, to ignore him or to say that there's nothing there, I think you might fall into you know his trap of saying, so you think that this just this easy hand waving to universality can create per- a political community? Look at you know political history. When has that been the case? And so I right. think it's important to reckon with him, never to agree with him, and certainly never to become a Schmidtian. I don't think that's the way to go. But I think it's a it's a task. The whole history of the left also too is a history of different antagonisms. Like imagine trying to do the history of any powerful whether it be like anti-colonial, whether it be like workers movement, like imagine any uh, any single one example of of those like political struggles that took place without that element of antagonism and even the sacrificial logic of being willing to die in those antagonisms oftentimes, mm-hmm. right? So, I want to ask now I'm, now that we've discussed this, and I'm willing to now indulge it, um, what does it mean to be like a left Schmidian? Like, I hear this phrase a lot, and I ignore it because it seems yeah. like it's not... <laughs> because, it's and that's not, a good policy, probably. There, there are some things that I just indulge, but I will now. Like, what is it? I think I don't know. Isn't Chantal Mouffe like, one of the main exponents left attra- of like what? It, why is the left attracted for her? Like yeah, Chantal so like Mouffe the, has the agonistic, this agonistic thing, right? That, that like you know she uses Schmidt to like make an argument against like Habermas and Rawls and the notion of like solving problems deliberatively, right? That she's yeah. trying to basically nod to the irreducibility of conflict and say like no, what politics needs to do is to like construct a space in which those agonisms are actually playing. There's an agonistic struggle that is able to be played out, but it's kind of bounded in a certain way. And it doesn't get to the level of maybe wanting to kill or actually being, co- yeah. you know, constituted politically Except in such a way as you're ready like to kill. It's the version of it. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's existential very, conflict. Yeah, it's, a, it's, just, like, it's yeah. like, it's like, it's like soy Schmidt. It's like soy <laughs> it, it is though. It is, oh but that's so true. Oh, but like, Dude, so have funny. those two words ever been put together in the history Definitely of humanity? Not. No, it's yeah. like that. It's like that Zizek shit, right? About how like it's Schmidt, but diet Schmidt. You get the Schmidt, but without the oh, caffeine. Without the, without the caffeine. Yeah, yeah, without yeah. The, the life or death struggle. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. like actually that was central. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's Schmidt anymore. But yeah, I, Owen said what I was going to say about what left Schmidt. Schmidtianism is supposed to be. It's this idea of, you know, we need to return to a, a, an activation of friend and enemy. We need to move away from, uh, you know, uh, pines to deliberation, to brotherhood, all of that. That that misses what politics is supposed to be, which is this intense affair of, of, of social practice. By the way, can I just say I totally in agreement with this, that, like, I couldn't stop thinking when I was reading that critique of Rousseau of Rawls and the way that he constructs the thought experiment, the original mm-hmm. position, because yeah. what, Schmidt, what Schmidt says about Rousseau is like, he's calling himself a contract theorist. We all talk about the social contract as this liberal thing. Actually, it's just democratic and not individualistic or, or liberal at all. Mm-hmm. And I was reading this being like, oh shit, that is exactly true of Rawls as well, right? Like the whole point of like, and again, coming out of this like weird set of assumptions around like rationalism, Mm-hmm. owed to an enlightenment conception of human human beings again another totally spurious philosophical anthropology mind you right <laughs> yeah. um which is i'm warmer like, oh, to rationalism though if i like <laughs> construct this if i construct this decision situation just so then everyone will agree <laughs> everyone will agree that this is justice and even if just you need were, a little you know, more conceptual engineering it's that's like all. that's what yeah like what are you talking about like this isn't like a contract theory where people actually have differing interests this is a means of ra- of constructing a, a rationalist ideal hypothesis so as to produce an ineliminable identity and it's like that's not liberal actually yeah. sorry Rawls that's anti-liberal <laughs> yeah oh uh, yeah. my boy which we Rawls. hate to see <laughs> yeah we hate to see it. <laughs> we hate to see it well I think that does it for us today 
Um, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks where you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Murray, Tasia Mars, Michael Salter, MLA Chernoff, Av, Mohamed Rawas, Isaac Stewart, Spencer, Chris Hall, Andre Hoop, Peter Karenye, Alec Perkins, James Screda, Diembare, G, NR962, respect, G, a different one, second G, Seth Dalton, Zlatan Ramuzovic, and Kirko. Thank you very much. Uh, if you too would like to support what we're doing, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. Super important. Uh, with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.